CEO Alpha is really the extra performance that a company gets from CEO outperformance. And intuitively makes sense that if the CEO is outperforming, that will translate into great returns for the company because CEOs make pretty substantial decisions around strategy, on resource allocation, M&A, hiring and firing top talent. Most of those decisions sit with the CEO. From McKinsey & Company, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Sasha Guy, a senior partner and the leader of our Toronto office. Sasha's client work is focused on institutional investors, private equity firms, and their portfolio companies. He's also one of the driving forces behind CEO Alpha, or how to create private company value through CEO outperformance. In today's special episode, Sasha speaks with Brian Vickery, a partner in our Boston office who hosts our Deal Volume podcast focused on private capital. During today's discussion, they'll cover a range of topics, including the implications of CEO Alpha for chief executives who are leading private equity portfolio companies, the different mandates these CEOs face, the steps they can take to create Alpha, and how they are navigating an increasingly volatile economic and geopolitical environment. They'll also touch on the implications for private equity fund and institutional investor leaders in the context of CEO Alpha. I mentioned that Brian hosts the Deal Volume podcast, and we've included a link in the show notes for you to learn more about Deal Volume if you'd like to keep up to date with our latest private equity insights. And now, here are Brian and Sasha. I'm delighted to be joined today by my friend and colleague, Sasha Guy. Along with our colleagues, Marlia Kaposi, John Kelleher, and Kurt Strovink, Sasha has been leading our work on a concept called CEO Alpha. Sasha, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me, Brian. Good to see you. Good to see you. Looking forward to the conversation. As we get into it here, I'd love to start with the basics. In my years as an analyst and a consultant, I've spent a whole lot of time looking at trying to tease out alpha from beta and investment managers and portfolios, I've never before come across a concept called CEO Alpha. I'm curious, did we make the term up? What is this all about? Well, we definitely made the term up, and that's for sure. We try to be pretty intentional in our use of language. And so maybe I'll talk a little bit about how we got to this term. And I'd start with kind of the concept of Alpha which I think as we all kind of remember from our finance 101 classes, right? Alpha at the end of the day is pseudonym for outperformance, extra performance, and typically applied in the finance sector. Alpha, kind of the ability to perform better than what the markets are are giving you. Could be an index or things like that. So when we think about CEO Alpha, CEO Alpha is really the extra performance that a company gets from CEO outperformance. And intuitively makes sense that if the CEO is outperforming, that will translate into great returns for the company because CEOs make pretty substantial decisions around strategy, on resource allocation, M&A, hiring and firing top talent. Most of those decisions sit with the CEO. And so making those decisions in the best way possible will have a outsized impact on the performance of the company. 
I might just say the one other thing behind CEO Alpha is it's empirically been shown to exist in the public realm. One of my favorite pieces of analysis and research uh, came out last year from Carolyn Dewar, Scott Keller, and Vic Malhotra when they put out their CEO Excellence book. And what they did is a pretty exhaustive piece of analysis in order to kind of calculate what I would call CEO Alpha. They looked at the top performing CEOs globally. I think their list was about 200. And they used a variety of factors in determining who's on that list. And then they calculated what is the outperformance of those companies. Outperformance meaning relative to the, each company's industry peers. So you're trying to strip out, if you will, the beta component. And what they found when they did that type of analysis in the public company realm is a gigantic value at stake in the alpha. It was on the order of $5 trillion for the 200 or so companies uh, that they looked at. So we think it exists. It's never been looked at very closely in the private realm, but that's kind of how we landed on the concept. It's interesting to hear you say that we've looked at this in the public space and your work and your team's work has been focused in the private space. Like, why do we need those distinct analyses that, you know, Carolyn and others, their book covers it pretty exhaustively. What's different in private space? That's a good question, Brian. I think it starts, I think, with an appreciation of the differences between the public and private realms. On one hand, you could look at it pretty simplistically and say, you know, a CEO is a CEO is a CEO. The decisions are very are similar. Why do we need to look at this more carefully in the private realm? And I think when you dig a little deeper, and we've done lots of interviews with private company CEOs, and the more we dug into the, the job, the more differences emerged between the public and private realms. So just a few things that I think kind of really struck us when we did our interviews and our research in, in the private realm. I think number one is performance edge, the amount of focus on performance and particularly short and medium term performance is quite distinct between the public and private realms. And that makes sense given the governance structure and the way kind of private equity, for example, operates. But that's quite different. And that has a material impact on how you make decisions and how you allocate resources and all the things that I said drives alpha in the public realm would be different. Uh, time horizon, I already spoke to working with the boards, the board of directors in a public versus private company is different. It's populated with different kinds of people who are focused on different kinds of things. And that requires a unique skill set that requires a unique set of capabilities in order to work with them. Some private company CEOs would say that, you know what, it's the board that's actually running the company. I'm the executor in chief. That's very different than a public company kind of environment. It even gets even to the operations are different between public and private companies, or there are differences. You have to pay people different. The compensation packages are different in a public versus private environment. That has an impact on talent attraction and talent retention. So that's different. So the more you, the deeper and deeper you go underneath the two different types of CEO profiles, the more differences emerge. And maybe one last one is I spoke to one CEO of a portfolio company and he said, day one, what was dropped on my desk was an investment thesis and a diligence package. And they said, your job is to kind of prosecute 
the investment thesis. And by the way, start thinking about exit on day one. So again, that would be a foreign concept to a public company CEO, totally foreign. So for all of those types of reasons, Brian, the further you look into, the more you realize that there are differences. And then therefore, if there are differences, then that says something about the type of capabilities required to succeed in this kind of different rubric or different type of position. And then therefore that has implications on the type of capability building programs and experiences that they're going to need in order to be successful. From personal experience, I've sat in a lot of those first board meeting conversations with private equity CEOs where it's, here's the result of the diligence and here's how we're thinking about the next five years. It's very much um, planned ahead, as you say, in a way I hadn't really appreciated so much different than how a public company might view the world. One thing that strikes me is you're talking and, and having read some of the work that you all have done, we're not talking about CEOs that are just fundamentally different people in creating alpha. You're actually talking about upskilling and training so that CEOs have the capability over time to create alpha. And I have to tell you, like, I don't think a lot about CEOs that spend a lot of their time sitting in trainings or working on their own development. I'm just curious how you all thought about that and how in your conversations with CEOs, how they thought about spending their own time to improve their skills and, and what they should be working on. It's a great point, Brian. A skeptic would look at this and say, you just told me that these folks are under tremendous amounts of time pressure. Every day of the year is kind of one over 250 of their entire year. They, do they really want to invest a single day in capability building when they could be focused on other things? It's a very valid question. I will tell you, when we had our conversations with private equity CEOs, there was a real hunger for insight and capability building, but for it to be delivered in a fundamentally different way that takes you out of the classroom and into the management kind of boardroom or team room. And so I'll talk a little bit more about what I mean by that in a second. But that was one kind of theme that came from the conversations with the CEOs. But the other theme that came from the conversations is how much they need it their own, I would say, perceived vulnerability. Now, many of them may not be willing to say that in front of their private equity board, but in the safe confines of an interview where on a no-names basis, they would say, to be honest, Asha, my background was an inventor, or I'm a founder, or I'm a former HR executive, and now all of a sudden I am leading a company. Being a founder and being a leader are not necessarily the same thing. And so, and if you contrast that, just going back to the public company example, let's say you're trying to work your way up to become the CEO of a bank. Well, nine times out of 10, the CEO of that bank, that last job was an executive vice president. And the job before that was a senior vice president. And the job before that was a vice president. They were climbing the corporate ladder in that bank. They were apprenticing in all the leadership skills. They were learning. They were growing. They were getting, their mandates were getting progressively bigger. And they were, in fact, preparing to be, one day, be a CEO. Contrast that with the pedigrees of private company CEOs, and it looks very different. Very, very different. And that actually creates a felt 
need. Now, whether they'll, as I said earlier, they may not express that all the time, depending on who they're talking to. But if you ask them honestly how well prepared they feel for this job, many of them will self-disclose that they do not feel prepared for this job. And it's trial by fire. It's learning by doing. And so I think that was a bit of an insight for us, that there is an openness, Brian, and a willingness to engage in building their own capabilities. The other data point, Brian, that really struck us is 75% of private company CEOs in the U.S. are replaced within the holding period, the private equity holding period. These guys and gals aren't dumb. They see the graveyard of CEOs in this industry, and they don't want to be one of them. So A, they kind of feel a little bit like they're probably a little bit unprepared or they could learn something. And B, the data would suggest if you're not performing, you're going to be replaced pretty quickly, which is a bit of that private equity model. When you combine those two forces, I think it does create a, a willingness and an openness to build their capabilities. Now, I said something earlier about the classroom and you asked me about the classroom. So let's pivot back to that. What we've discovered is the appetite for capability building very much is focused in kind of two areas. Give me some upfront insight and a framework of how to think about a particular topic that I don't know very well, and then help me apply it in my operating environment. So I'll give you a simple example. Talent management and talent to value. Okay. You have an approach which is not focused on just general talent management, how to build a high-performing team, but what are the critical roles that I need to get right in my company? I might need to pay people of the same level differently because of their criticality to the investment thesis. You identify, help me recruit those people, help me apply it within my company so that in the course of a two to three week sprint, I end up in a different place than where I was before. That type of, I would say, field and forum model, I think there's a high degree of openness to, not the let's just kind of go get some general education and sit in a classroom and be talked at for a day and a half. I think that's the different, what I would call the delivery vehicle that I think needs to be customized to the private equity environment. Makes a lot of sense. I'd love to get into a little bit of it. You started to tease it a little bit there and talking about talent to value. What are the critical components? If you're a CEO in a portfolio company, like what's in the realm of things that you're thinking about? I need to upskill myself on X or the private equity firm conversely should be saying, yeah, I need to look for CEOs that are able to do X or I need to train my CEOs to be able to do X. Like what, what's in that box? It's a good question. We've done quite a bit of thinking about that particular topic. The first thing I would say is these folks don't have time to kind of get the general list. It needs to be customized to their background. It needs to be customized to what they're solving for the investment thesis. So let's just go back to that for a second. It's all about prosecuting the investment thesis as effectively as possible. Some companies will be growth oriented. Some companies will be M&A oriented, like I'm doing a roll up of dental clinics in the U.S. Midwest. OK, that prescribes a certain set of capabilities, right, which is different. Or it could be an operating improvement thesis that I'm going to be running my facilities or 
whatever it is better and better. And I'm going to outcompete the next guy on a cost plus basis. So I think part of our thinking here, I hope what makes it distinctive is we're trying to be laser focused on what needs to get done for the company and what the CEO's perceived vulnerability or skill gaps are and bring those two together. So I would just state that as kind of an overarching kind of comment. That said, there are 10 essentials that we have found to be pretty relevant across different archetypes of private equity assets. So I'll I'll just quickly run through them just so you get a feel for what's in the box. So first is kind of talent to value to drive the investment thesis. That's the the one I, the example I gave earlier. Uh, The second one is around strategic planning in a three to five year time horizon. That's not long-term strategic. Where do I want to be in 10 years? This is a shorter term. What pivots do I need to make from a portfolio point of view? to optimize my portfolio businesses for success. The third one is what we call mastering the human dynamic of leading a portfolio company, which is a fancy way of saying, uh, how do I work with my board effectively, especially given they have a different set of incentives and they operate different than a public company, as we talked about earlier, but also how do I work with the private equity operating partner? Most private equity firms have an operating partner that's in the mix, may or may not be on the board. And then how do I work with my executives? And given we all have this compensation package and incentive. So there's like this interesting triangle that is different than a public company board. One of my colleagues, John Kelleher, likes to call it how to work for your two different masters. That's another way to frame it. But again, different. Private equity performance management and dashboards is another area. It is remarkable to me how many private equity portfolio company CEOs are hungering for better data on their business. And if they could manage it in a more seamless kind of simple dashboard, that would allow them to focus their energies and what they're doing uh, more effectively. So that's an area that we think is important to learn how to do and how to build that. Profit dissection and resource reallocation. McKinsey Research for years has talked about the value of resource reallocation. Companies that reallocate resources more dynamically across the portfolio have a total return to show shareholders two to three times of companies that don't. That's just a, a skill of how to run your budgeting process, how to have those conversations, and then how to pull the trigger on resources is a skill that I think can be learned. I can imagine too, in the short time frame you have as a private equity owner, that resource allocation has to happen pretty quickly too. It has to happen pretty quickly. And it, it's sometimes painful because you're taking stuff away from people. And that's a tricky thing to do. Inorganic growth. Uh, we talked about M&A. One private equity portfolio company CEO said that, you know, I'm fundamentally deal maker in chief. That's what I do. That's my the investment thesis is all around M&A. That's a super important skill uh, that many CEOs, particularly like go back to my earlier comments, but you're a founder. I worked with a portfolio company that did wound care medical devices. How skilled is that person necessarily in being a serial M&A? person, right? So there's a lot of, I think, value in kind of learning how to pick up some of those skills. Advanced financial decision-making, I'll go through a couple other ones. Uh, Value creation with frontier technologies, me's worth just chatting a little bit about this one for a second, Brian, because think about all the, and now I'm going to go outside of just private equity and even the private assets world, all the disruption that's happening from technology, 
all the disruption that's happening, macroeconomics, inflation, how the higher interest rate environment is affecting the private equity model because cost of debt in a different place than it's been for most of the last 30 or 40 years. So think about all these other what I would call exogenous variables that's affecting the economy. All these things, how do I think about my business in that context is I think an area that many CEOs feel vulnerable on and would, would really value insight and a framework to think about that. So that's another big topic. And then exit prep. We talked about that, right? Like day one, you're thinking about exit. And so, you know, I work with one portfolio company where they have already decided who they plan to sell to. Not exactly the one name, but a portfolio of buyers. And their entire strategy is positioning themselves to sell to that company. And so I would think all private equity CEOs, portfolio company CEOs would benefit from thinking that way. It's a great model. So how do I start to build a capability to think about that so that you create more option value for you down the road? So anyway, those are that's a little bit of what's in the box, Brian. But as I said at the outset, all of this does need to be customized to what they're trying to achieve. Yeah, it's great. And thank you for running me through it. I actually want to go a little bit sideways on one of the comments that you made in there, which is talking about the current environment. And I know in your research, like you're, you're doing this research not in a vacuum in the context of everything that's happened over the last 12 months and how acutely that's impacted, certainly our GP clients. I'm just curious, what themes were you hearing on what CEOs are talking about in the current environment? Like, what are they worried about more today than they, than they may have been in the past? Like, what came up in those conversations? It's a couple things I mentioned already, and then I'll add a couple ones. Like one, it's cost of debt and the impact that that's having on the balance sheet. And therefore, that is an impact on the need for operating improvements to service the debt. Most of these companies have quite a bit of debt loaded on it. So that's one. But there's a few other ones, depressed multiples. So let's think about that. If multiples are off what they have typically been, Um, That can have the impact of having to kind of increase the hold period for many of these companies. And if you increase the hold period, your IRR gets under pressure unless you're able to kind of deliver excess value. So that's another, I would say, reinforcing device around operating improvement. And by the way, operating improvement kind of sits on top of CEO alpha, right? Like if you're in the go-go days of the 1980s of private equity where operating improvement was not really the point, it was all about financial leverage, then CEO alpha is kind of a, not really a valuable concept. So CEO Alpha depends on the need of operating improvement, I would argue. And I think operating improvement is being even more prioritized given some of these macro forces. Inflation, I think, is another one that obviously, and when we talk about inflation, to be more specific, wage inflation, a big issue. Many of these institutions are are quite talent-driven, so how do they work through that? AI, obviously, How can we get through this podcast without talking about chat GPT and all these other technologies? What does it mean for my business, right? I'm working with one portfolio company that's got, it's like a a BPO. Well, interesting, BPO, call center agents, chat GPT. I can see a connection there. How do I rapidly form a point of view on what these types of technologies could mean for the BPO business? We have a strong point of view on how to do that at McKinsey, which I won't take us down that rabbit hole, but that's an example of how some of these newer edge technologies could become highly relevant very quickly in a classic private equity portfolio company business. Geopolitical risk means one of my colleagues at McKinsey, Sven Smith, 
has talked about different eras in the economic since post-World War II. And, and he would say, you know, we're, we're entering a, an era that known as geopolitical markets and where markets are going to be affected by geopolitical risk. And so if I'm a portfolio company that has operations in 17 countries, do I need to be thinking about geopolitics in a fundamentally different way? I probably wasn't even thinking about geopolitics five years ago. Probably wasn't even on my list of things to worry about. Got to worry about that now. Need a framework. Need a way of addressing it. So that's another one. And then maybe last one, and then I'll stop. Um, 60% of private equity and institutional investor sponsors require their portfolio companies to have a sound ESG strategy. And it's not just the E, but it's S and G. And so again, if I'm a founder or I'm an inventor or I'm now cast into this role, what experience do I have thinking about ESG? And how do I view it as both an offensive and defensive strategy for my business? So that's another one that, that's come up quite a bit from, from a variety of our, inter- our interviews. And certainly on the last one, portfolio companies are going to be asked to produce more and more data related to what they're doing on ESG up to the GP who is then reporting the LP, right? So this, this is coming and I think everybody sees it, right? Absolutely. You mentioned this in 75% of CEOs don't last the tenure of the investment hold period, which is consistent with all of our own lived experience and the companies we've worked with. The research focuses on making your CEOs better as a CEO, making yourself better to produce more alpha. Does it say anything about how GPs ought to be thinking about the CEOs that they select or the types of CEOs that are able to grow? That's a great point, Brian. The the flip side of the coin, if you will, on CEO alpha is can you kind of build a bit of a point of view on the skills and capabilities that you as a private equity sponsor would look for in your CEOs as well as next generation CEOs? And so one of the themes that's come up in our interviews has been the huge need around succession planning and finding good CEOs for portfolio companies. And so we have been exploring also the idea of building capability building programs for up and coming executives that aspire to become a portfolio company CEO over time. And so I do think that that's another I think angle, I think that the demand there would be quite, quite exciting because I think it is an area of uh, people aspire for and they probably don't have a whole lot of options. In fact, they don't have a whole lot of options. If you actually look, if you actually ask private equity CEOs, okay, so where did you get your learning from? How did you learn how to, it's all ad hoc. I called Joe or I called Mary and, you know, or two people called me and said, hey, congrats on this job. Here's a few things you need to think about. Like these kinds of very ad hoc kind of mentoring type type situations. And, and I think we can bring a whole lot more structure and focus to that. That's great. I've got one more question. I'd love to close a little bit where we started. I mentioned at the very beginning that you've spent a lot of your time over the last couple of decades with institutional investors and it's been my pleasure to, to do some of that work alongside you in the last couple of years. As you think about the work you've done and the research that, that you've led with CEOs and then thinking about the impact that those CEOs have on the portfolio and the GPs that they're working with, like, are there any lessons in this for LPs? Like, If you're an LP today, how would you relate the thinking in CEO Alpha to how you think about your portfolio? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Brian. I, I think... There's a couple of angles to it. I think 
many LPs are exploring increasing their direct programs. So I think for that category of LPs, to be honest, there's no difference than what a GP would take away from this. And many LPs are, are acting like GPs. Uh, but even for those that are not, what one can argue that if you buy into the thesis that finding and growing exceptional leaders is going to lead to alpha, then you should be more systematically asking questions of your fund partners, investment managers, about how they grow talent, not their own talent, but how they grow talent of their portfolio companies. And if you look at the pitches, and I've had the privilege of sitting in many GP pitches, fundraising pitches to LPs, oftentimes they, they talk about their own talent. Oh, yes, we have collectively 8,700 years of experience investing in telecom, right? Yep. And they have that, they have the org charts. They're very internally focused. But the real question I'd put out there is, how can you build an ecosystem and be a destination for talent? Because you've got the world's best capability building programs. At McKinsey, we've tried to do that for 60 years by having exceptional capability building programs for our talent. And that has helped us be a top destination for decades for people because they come here largely because they want to grow. They want to get better. They may not stay. They may stay. They may not stay. But that's been part of our strategy. I think private equity firms could think about that too. And institutional investors who are investing in the private equity firms should be asking questions about that. What is your strategy to have great leaders, especially in our volatile, increasing volatile, complex world? Having people with a diverse set of skills, competencies, knowledge, background is going to be, I think, even more important given the decade in front of us versus versus the past. So that would be a pretty, I think, important line of inquiry that, you know, if I were an LP, I would be talking to my GPs about. Yeah, and I love that line of thinking, too, because it's it's another quiver for GPs and thinking about operating value creation, right? And they're all talking now about how they're creating value in operations. It's generally functionally approached. And this is another way to talk about it. So yes, we can do all the functional things. We can do the procurement and the pricing and we can do the strategy, but we also can do the upskilling and we can change the talent of the pool that we have there and not just be about hiring. Like those that have this capability is generally about what we really help them hire and bring in a new team and be somewhat unique for a GP to say, actually, we also have the ability to really upskill even the most senior leaders of that team. So there's another wave of, I guess, of, of alpha to come back to where we started on at their disposal. I think that's exactly right, Brian. And, and at the end of the day, one of the biggest fundamental drivers is a value creation of portfolio companies is building a high-performing team, right? I don't, I don't think anybody would disagree with that kind of general statement. And having a CEO who is a fabulous talent developer, fabulous recruiter, is able to kind of pitch a terrific story and then surround him or herself with outstanding kind of talent, it makes all the difference in the world, all the difference in the world. And so that's another reason why you really want to invest in that CEO and make sure that that CEO is, it's almost like that pivotal role, that leverage point, if you will, that as a sponsor, you can directly influence. You can directly influence who's in that job 
and how you've equipped that person to be the most effective in their job. And then that's the leverage point to have tremendous, I think, impact up and down the organization of the portfolio company. So that's another reason why we, we were pretty excited about, about focusing on this community and hopefully making a difference. It's great. I love it. Well, Sasha, my friend, thank you very much for joining. It's been a pleasure as expected. And we hope you enjoyed this special episode focused on private company CEO excellence. With thanks to all of our listeners for joining us today. If you'd like to dive deeper into a podcast on private capital, again, we've included a link in the show notes for our deal volume podcast, as well as links to related reading on our CEO alpha and CEO excellence work. As always, if you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, just email us at ITSR at McKinsey.com, which stands for Inside the Strategy Room. You can also share your ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast player with many thanks to everyone who's already done so. We do appreciate your comments and feedback and encourage you to keep them coming. If you enjoyed today's episode and you'd like to subscribe to our series, you can follow it on your favorite podcast player. And that's where you can also access our entire library of previous episodes. We also offer an Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page, and that's available at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, again, for Inside the Strategy Room. And there you can easily browse our prior podcasts across six major themes and also access written transcripts of all of those conversations. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest publications and insights, we encourage you to sign up at our insights page available at mckinsey.com SCF. That's for strategy and corporate finance. Or you can follow us on Twitter or X at MCK Strategy or connect with us on LinkedIn at the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the Strategy Room. <laughs>